Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. campaign trail today. Left from Air Force Base on the Plus three. Roger in place. Plus six. Plus twelve. Clear. What there's a lot yet to do. What the hell kind of gun is that? Something I made. Wouldn't be interested in selling it, would you? No, I need it. For what? To assassinate the president. <laughs> Looking at a living legend. Only Activision who ever lost a president. Oh my god. That's you. Yeah. Frank Oregon, the Secret Service agent. Yeah. You were JFK's favorite agent, the best and the brightest. Fate has brought us together, Frank. Who the hell is this? Why not call me Booth? Booth and Flair Panache. What makes you think you'll call again? Panache. Panache? Yeah, it means flamboyance. I know what it means. Really? I had to look it up. This guy's gonna make a try, and I've gotta come back, Sam. Frank, at your age. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States! Do you really have the guts to take a bullet, Frank? Gun! False alarm! The balloon getting a little panic. You keep him away from the president, away from the White House, and you sure as hell better keep him away from me. What do you think? I think maybe you're too close to all this, Frank. You know, it does make me wonder about Dallas, though. Did you really do all you could have? We got him. He's right across the street. You better pray I don't find you, you punk. The clock's ticking, Frank. see when you're in the dark and the demons come i see you standing over the grave of another dead president that's not gonna happen this summer clint eastwood is in the line of fire Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're gonna do the movie In the Line of Fire from 1993. Now, the studio is Columbia Pictures, release date in July 9th, 1993. Running time, 128 minutes, and the rating is R. The budget was $40 million, and the box office was a success, $102 million, which ranks 7th of all movies from 1993, and that was domestic gross. Rotten Tomatoes gives it 96% fresh from 67 reviews. The critics' consensus is a straightforward thrower of the highest order. In the Line of Fire benefits from Wolfgang Peterson's taut direction and charismatic performances from Quinn Eastwood and John Malkovich. Roger Ebert at the time gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Throwers are as good as their villains, and In the Line of Fire has a great one, a clever, slimy creep who insidiously burrows his way into the psyche of the hero, a veteran Secret Service agent named Horrigan, played by Quinn Eastwood. 
The creep, who likes to play mind games with his opponents, makes a series of phone calls threatening to assassinate the president. He chooses Horrigan because he knows the agent still feels guilty about failing to save the life of John F. Kennedy 30 years ago. The would-be killer has an all-American name, Mitch, and is played by John Malkovich as an intelligent, twisted man who uses disguises, fake ID, and an interrogating manner to get close to the president. He tells Horrigan more or less what he plans to do and when, but Horrigan's hands are tied. The president is running for re-election, and his chief of staff doesn't want him to look like a coward. So after Horrigan sounds a couple of false alarms, he's taken off the White House detail and has to break the rules in order to stay on Mitch's trail. And it's broad outlines in Line of Fire has a similar story to many of Eastwood's Dirty Harry movies in which a psycho killer plays games with the cop who is ordered off the case and then continues as a freelance helped by a loyal partner. The movie even supplies a typical Eastwood sidekick, a woman agent played by Renee Russo who is tough and capable and able to fall in love. Despite the familiar plot elements, however, In the Line of Fire is not a retread, but a smart, tense, well-made thriller. Eastwood's best in the genre since Tightrope from 1984. The director is Wolfgang Peterson, who directed Das Boot, who was able to unwind the plot like clockwork, while at the same time establishing the characters as surprisingly sympathetic. Horrigan, the Secret Service man, still blames himself for the Kennedy assassination. He feels somehow he could have made a difference. Mitch has done his research, knows all about Horrigan, and insidiously slithers into his mind with words aimed like poison darts. Soon, the assassination attempt becomes a two-handed game in which Horrigan is as much of an outsider as Mitch and must protect the president almost against his will and the will of his politically ambitious staff. Russo, as Lily, another agent, finds an interesting variation on the role of associate and lover. Her relationship with Horrigan begins on a rocky note when he drops a couple of sexist statements, essentially accusing the service of tokenism for hiring women. Well, okay, he's an unreconstructed chauvinist pig, but eventually their respect for each other grows, and there is a wonderful played moment when they concede they're attracted to one another. Meanwhile, the plot advances relentlessly. After seeing The Firm, which was good, but needlessly labyrinth, it was a pleasure to follow the twists and turns of Jeff McGuire's screenplay for In the Line of Fire. It doesn't waste the line. Horrican takes the clues that Mitch provides him, uses intuition and experience, breaks agency policy when necessary, and eventually finds himself testing the willingness that all secret servicemen are supposed to have to take a bullet in place of the president. Eastwood is perfect for this role, as a man of long experience and deep feelings. He is set off by an inspired performance by Malkovich, who is quiet and methodical and very clever, and devises a sneaky plan to work his way close to the president with an ingenious murder weapon. The movie's climax is exciting not only because of its action, but also because of its flawless logic. What's surprising is how much time the movie finds for small touches of realistic detail and emotion. The conversations between Eastwood and Russo about work, jazz, strategy, and romance sound if they're taking place between real people. The locations look convincing, especially Air Force One, and some shots supposedly inside the White House. The special effects are good at inserting a young Eastwood into 1963 footage of Kennedy, establishing the character's deep need to stop the new assassination he feels is coming. And the direction of the final scenes is as spectacular as it is skillful. Yet, it's unlikely that Mitch the Killer would jump into that elevator. It's an example, in fact, of the fallacy of the climbing killer, in which villains always make the mistake of heading for a high place. 
but it allows an earlier situation to come around again as a sensational payoff. Most thrillers these days are about stunts and action. In the Line of Fire has a mind, and that's the end of his review. So I think I saw this in the theater when it first came out in 1993, and I absolutely loved it. I usually love anything that Clint Eastwood does, but as Ebert mentions, the key to this movie is John Malkovich. He's the perfect villain, and without him, the film wouldn't have worked as well. John Malkovich has the perfect dead eyes and subdued mannerisms to play the assassin. Nobody else could have done better. All right, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Queen Eastwood playing Frank Horrigan. I've already done a few uh, Eastwood episodes so far, so I won't get too much into his history. But really, at this point in his career, he was already a legend on screen, and he had just directed his masterpiece a year prior with Unforgiven. He would keep his streak going throughout the 90s with movies like A Perfect World, The Bridges Over Madison County, and Absolute Power. John Malkovich plays Mitch Leary, and this was probably the first movie I saw Malkovich in, though he had, of course, appeared in movies since the early 1980s. And a few notable films prior to In the Line of Fire include The Killing Fields, Empire of the Sun, and Dangerous Liaisons. Though funny enough, I do remember seeing him in the Annie Lennox video uh, for her song Walking on Broken Glass. In this time, you know, that time period sort of fit uh, the Dangerous Liaisons era, you know, at least the look of it. Rene Russo plays Lily Rains, and Russo's career started in the late 1980s uh, on a TV series called Sable, but once the 90s started, her career just took off. She was in movies like Major League, Mr. Destiny, Free Jack, and joined the Lethal Weapon franchise in the third installment. Glenn Close and Sharon Stone both turned down the role of Lily Rains before it went to Russo. The director, Wolfgang Peterson, he was best known for his work in Germany filming TV shows and movies, but his breakout film was 1981's Das Boot, which gave him international success. His next movie was a favorite for many kids of the 80s, The NeverEnding Story from 1984. The next year, he made Enemy Mine with Dennis Quaid, and next came 1991's Shattered with Tom Berenger and Bob Hoskins before he made In the Line of Fire two years later. The screenwriter is Jeff McGuire, and In the Line of Fire would be his best-known work, though his first movie was 1981's Victory with Michael Caine and Sylvester Stallone and Pele, which is a soccer movie that takes place, I believe, in World War II. All right, let's get into some of the facts about the, the making of this movie. Uh, Ennio Marconi did the film score, and he, of course, was famous for the early spaghetti westerns that Queen Eastwood starred in. Eastwood wanted a European director and recommended Wolfgang Peterson. This was interesting since Eastwood rarely appeared in a film that he didn't direct at this point in his career. Peterson that Eastwood was really easy to direct and a joy to be around. At the time, Eastwood was 63 at the shooting of this film, and he was in tremendous physical shape and was up to the task of running throughout the films because that's what Secret Service agents do when they're protecting the president on that particular detail. Peterson was really impressed with Rene Russo so much that he immediately cast her in his next film, Outbreak, with Dustin Hoffman. Peterson had a nice anecdote about Eastwood as he's kind of a feel actor. He doesn't necessarily memorize his lines, which means he usually needs more takes when there's a ton of dialogue. But the beauty of Eastwood is his has always been his facial expressions and his mannerisms. Dylan McDermott, who plays e Eastwood's partner, was super enthusiastic about the having the chance to work alongside Eastwood uh, because he really hadn't done much prior. He was even thinking about getting out of acting and trying something else. He was kind of in awe of Clint, understandably, and a few years later he would go on to much success on the TV show The Practice. So the original idea of In the Line of Fire came out in the 80s, 
but went to the screenwriter in 1990. Jeff Apple, the producer of the project, came up with the title as well. And since this movie is specifically about the Secret Service, uh, I thought I'd give some background about the history and the function uh, as it has evolved over the years. So every agent wonders kind of if, they, if they're going to have to take a bullet. It's a split-second decision that you must have that inner understanding to make the decision. It's really a fascinating mentality. And what type of person would put their life on the line for one person every single day? And it may even be a for someone you don't even like, but that's part of their duty. And the amount of training an agent receives is incredibly intense and lengthy. They are the best of the best. They're often undercover and must be top investigators. They're essentially criminal investigators with protective skills. All scenarios are prepared for extensively. Whether it be vehicle, on foot, at rallies and speeches, they are all covered for what will be real-life situations for the agents. So after agents have completed their training, everything they do will be instinctual, like second nature. The training, they're recruited from field offices, they're sent to basic nine-week training courses in Georgia, and then to Maryland to the main office for another nine to ten weeks of training. Essentially, their first year on the job is more like training at a field office. Then they are assigned to a veteran agent to oversee their first year. And all they all start as field agents to, to really start off their career and gain experience learning from the senior agents. The amount of preparation for these guys is immense. Every second of the day is planned for protection of the president. However, no matter how much prep is done, there is always a small percentage that you can't protect, and agents have to be ready for the ultimate sacrifice. Agents have to be invisible in plain sight. So this movie actually had Secret Service agents as technical advisors. So Bob Snow was the main technical advisor. And this is the first movie to have active cooperation from the Secret Service. And this leads to, be, you know, this movie being a more realistic view of the Secret Service that has ever been portrayed on film. Rene Russo studied with actual Secret Service agents to prepare for her role. And now Bob Snow is one of the top advisors for movies involving the Secret Service. That, it would be an amazing gig for him. Eastwood loved flawed characters, and this is what drew him to this role. It, it was his chance for redemption. His character is based partly on an actual agent, ironically named Clint, his name Clint Hill, who was actually at the JFK assassination at the time. He was interviewed on 60 Minutes back in the day. If I had reacted just a little bit quicker, I could have, I guess. I'll live with that to my grave. So Malkovich's character is kind of done with the world and he feels like he's been betrayed and he's ready to make his mark in the ultimate way. And kind of like a lot of these assassins, and so some of the assassinations of presidents in the U.S. in U.S. history, including attempts, of course you had Abraham Lincoln, James Garfield, William McKinley, Teddy Roosevelt actually used private funds to hire uh, a White House Secret Service, even though there was never an attempt on him. William Howard Taft was the first to use congressional approved uh, Secret Service in U.S. history. Of course, John of Kennedy, and then there was an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. All the agents were affected after the John F. Kennedy assassination. At the time, the Secret Service was small. It only had 450 agents that were on active duty. Nowadays, there's over 2,200 agents. And unfortunately, it took a tragedy to get the resources the agency needed. Sadly, I mean, this is commonplace with life in general. Most things in life are reactive instead of proactive when it involves avoiding issues like this. 
So the model of how an assassin could strike with such speed was based on the Reagan attempt. Uh, Reagan was grabbed and put into a vehicle in three seconds by a field agent. Within nine seconds, they were moving away from the scene to get him care. Two agents were shot along with the press secretary, James Brady. All threats to the president are taken seriously and investigated. A lot of times this is not publicized in order to avoid uh, copycats. Even a casual threat is a federal offense. And interestingly enough, scandal-wise, you don't hear about Secret Service scandals, as opposed to the FBI and the CIA. That says a lot about the department. For the movie, an actual Bill Clinton rally was filmed, and the filmmakers removed Clinton from the movie president and then... uh, Quinn Eastwood was blue screened in. Special effects wise, it's very well done, especially for the early 1990s. Okay, let's just get right into the movie. So the movie begins in Washington, D.C. with Al, who is Dylan McDermott. Uh, he's running late to pick up Frank, who is Quinn Eastwood, and he gives him every excuse of why he's late. And Eastwood, in his typical dry delivery, basically says, Are you done giving excuses? Now let's get to work. So they are Secret Service agents who are on a case to bust a counterfeiting ring. Unfortunately, McDermott asks too many questions, and they are busted as being cops. Can you uh, go downstairs and help out Jimmy and Raul with me, please? Yeah, sure. Appreciate it. This is his. Hey, guys. Hey. You don't trust me. (laughs) I live in a crappy neighborhood. Get that funny money? Yeah. Right here. Looks good. Looks real good. Oh, we're in business. Excellent. There's just one problem, Frank. Oh? You know this guy, Al? He keeps asking me all these questions about my counterfeiter. Really? Yeah, he asked me too many questions. Now, my instinct usually tells me when there's something wrong. And there's something wrong here, so I had him followed. He's a fucking Secret Service agent, Frank. What do you think I ought to do here, Frank? the body doesn't wash up on shore. <laughs> I want you to pop them for me, okay? See, I think maybe you're with him. Look, you came to me, remember? So pop him, show me I'm an asshole. I'm just a businessman. So pop him. And let's do some business. Let's go get an omelet. You like omelets, Frank? I know a good place. We'll have chili and cheese. Let me get my pistol later. My gun? You're under arrest. And you're under arrest, too. Secret Service. 
So the actual genesis of the creation of the Secret Service was in 1865 to actually catch counterfeiters. At the time, it was estimated over a third of the U.S. currency was counterfeit, which is crazy. It used to be a very specific skill to create counterfeit plates and printing. Now, with technology, it's made it easier with computers. Currency was updated in 1996 with more watermarks included into the paper bills. The security thread was also added in 1990 and kept in the 1996 update. It's very difficult for counterfeiters to get these items into their bills. Uh, red and blue security fibers are also included in the paper of real currency, and also the color-shifting ink is used now as well. Meaning, if you look at a bill straight on, it will be green. When you shift the view of the paper, the denominator nomination color will switch to black. So back to the movie, McDermott is understandably shaken after Eastwood called the bluff of the counterfeiter by pulling the trigger of the empty gun without truly knowing. But that's what makes Eastwood's characters badass. So Eastwood comments after McDermott questions him uh, that Eastwood said he knew all along. Well, there could have been one bullet in there, he says, of course, in his dry wit. So then Eastwood goes to check out a tip on a, at an apartment about some suspicious activity. The landlady is the actress Elsa Raven, who you might know as Save the Clock Tower Lady in Back to the Future. Inside the apartment is a ton of old news articles about past assassinations, most notably about the Kennedys, John and Bobby. Eastwood finds a note that has a quote from Sirhan Sirhan, who was Bobby Kennedy's assassination killer, uh, which says, They can gas me, but I am famous. I have achieved in one day what it took Robert Kennedy to do all his life. Sadly, this is really prophetic in today's social media idiots who commit these massacres for quick fame and sick fame. The name the landlady has is a fake ID and it was stolen from a guy dead over 30 years ago. We see a man in, in the shadows watching outside the apartment while Eastwood investigates inside. We find out this is later John Malkovich. So while Eastwood and McDermott return the next day to talk to the resident in the apartment, everything is cleared out except for one photo, which shows a much younger Eastwood on the job as a Secret Service agent running alongside President Kennedy's car the day of his assassination in Dallas on November 23, 1963. When Eastwood returns to his apartment that night, he gets a phone call from Malkovich, who is following him. Eastwood asks what he should call him. Malkovich says Booth, which of course is a nod to John Wilkes Booth, the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln. Eastwood says, why not Oswald? Of course, a nod to Lee Harvey Oswald, the supposed killer of John F. Kennedy. Malkovich claimed Booth had flair and panache since he leaped on stage at the theater once he had shot Lincoln. Malkovich states he's going to kill the current president, and he is fascinated that Eastwood will be on his trail because of the Kennedy connection. So Eastwood meets with uh, more Secret Service agents, including the head of the department, played by John Mahoney. You might know him as the Ioni Sky's dad and say anything. The crew of actors in his circle are impressive, including Rene Russo, Gary Cole, and Gregory Allen Williams. Eastwood wants to return as a field agent for the president. Mahoney thinks he's nuts, considering he's well past his playing day's age. Being a field agent means running alongside the car of the president during public appearances. Eastwood's first attempt does not go well, as he's clearly winded and rusty. Also, Malkovich is in the crowd, watching. There's a hilarious scene where the paramedics run into the Secret Service building, think thinking that Eastwood just had a heart attack. However, he was just resting after a long day. As it turns out, they were just playing a joke on him. Malkovich calls Eastwood that night and tells him that he should get in better shape. Malkovich tells Eastwood that he's watching his movie, referring to the Zabruder film from the Kennedy assassination. It's quite a job guarding the president. You have to put your life on the line without even thinking about it. So look at the agent who pushed Ronald Reagan into his limousine when John Hinckley shot at Reagan in 81. 
That agent's name was Jerry Parr. Parr's quick reaction and decision to take Reagan to the hospital and not the White House likely saved Reagan's life. Fred Thompson plays the White House chief of staff and does not want to cancel the president's campaign stops. All the while, Malkovich is in his workshop setting up some sort of device to assassinate the president. So Rene Russo and Eastwood have an interesting relationship in the film. It starts icy, but it thaws as they work closer together. There's a fun scene while sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Regarding Russo and Eastwood, she likes him due to his humor. Most of the agents take themselves way too seriously. I've never worked with a female agent before. How many are there? About 125. Hmm. Pure window dressing. Excuse me? Window dressing. About 125 out of a little over 2,000. They have you all around so the president can look good to his feminist voters. Do you make an effort to be obnoxious or is it a gift? It's a gift. Let's face it, half the things we do are window dressing. Take running alongside that limousine. I'd take an anti-tank missile to put a dent in that damn thing. There we are out for show, trying to make the president look more presidential. So if I'm here to court the feminist vote, what demographics do you represent? Let's see, white piano playing heterosexuals over the age of 50. They ain't a whole lot of us, but uh, we do have a powerful lobby. Well, time flies when you're being annoyed. Where are you going? I have a date. Well. That's none of your business. You want a ride? I don't think so. I like it here this time of day. I think I'll hang out. Okay, well, thanks for the ice cream. See ya. You're welcome. back. That means she's interested. Come on now, give me a little look. A little glance back. Give me that smug look and be on your way. Well, Abe, <clears throat> damn, wish I could have been there for you, pal. So Malkovich is always one step ahead, always in different disguises, and even when he allows his call to be traced, he's never caught. This includes an on-foot pursuit in downtown D.C. He gets away, but a fingerprint is found after he's hit by a car, and they can trace the print. However, even though the print is a match, only certain personnel with high clearance can see who it is. All the while, Malkovich follows every campaign stop the president has across the United States. So it's funny, the president is almost secondary in this film. The actor who plays him is not well known, his name's Jim Curley, and you actually never hear the president's thoughts. It's an interesting way to present the plot because the president actually is an afterthought. The movie is really the story of the Secret Service. There's a false alarm after a balloon pops at a rally which makes Eastwood look really bad to his colleagues and leads to potential issues with the president looking weak in public. Eastwood is pulled off protective detail, though he's kind of still on the case. Malkovich calls the gloat that Eastwood was spooked by the balloon popping. Turns out, Malkovich is an ex-CIA agent. Better put, he's an assassin gone rogue. So Malkovich calls Eastwood again, but this time directly to the Secret Service office. Why is it everyone who ever knew you said that you're a sick son of a bitch? Your colleagues, 
Your wife? Uh, what does your wife say about you, Frank? Oh, we're not talking about me. Frank, you of all people, I want you to understand. Why should because I understand? Because we both used to think that this country was a very special place. You don't know what I used to Oh, think. but you know about me? Do you have any idea what I've done for God and country? Some pretty fucking horrible things. I don't even remember who I was before they sunk their claws into me. They made you into a real monster, That's right? That's right. And now they want to destroy me because we can't have monsters roaming the quiet countryside now, can we? What do you see when you're in the dark and the demons come? I see you, Frank. I see you standing over the grave of another dead president. That's not gonna happen. I'm on to you. Fuck you, Frank. I am willing to trade my life for his. I am smart and I am willing and that is all it takes. That president is coming home from California in a fucking box. Where in California? Uh, with the address? Come on, Frank. I'll keep you in the game, but I'm not gonna throw it for you. I want you to give yourself up. So I can live a long and fruitful life? Oh, we can work something out. <sighs> Fuck you. Frank, don't fucking lie to me. I have a rendezvous with death. Oh, and so does the president. And so do you, Frank, if you get too close to me. You have a rendezvous with my ass, motherfucker. Frank, Frank. Do you know how easily I could kill you, Frank? Do you know how many times I've watched you go in and out of that apartment? You're alive because I have allowed you to live. So you show me some goddamn respect! So the original rehearsal of that scene did not include Malkovich yelling at Eastwood. It works better that Malkovich is starting to become a little bit unhinged. All the phone calls were real, meaning when Eastwood answers the phone, Malkovich was always on the other line. It added to some of the realism of the scenes. Because often, in these telephone calls and movies, it's a one-sided conversation. The actor is really acting that they're talking to someone. So there is another on-foot chase, you know, the tried-and-true running-on-the-rooftops chase. Things don't go as planned, but I'm not going to give away this scene because it's well done, it's suspenseful, and does give away some plot details. And there's another really well-done scene. Uh, that is when Eastwood is talking about the day Kennedy was shot and the thoughts of a field agent during a chaotic time. For years I've been listening to all these idiots on bar stools with all their pet theories on Dallas. How was the Cubans or the CIA or the white supremacists or the mob or whether it was one weapon or whether it was five? Uh, that's meant too much to me. But Leary, he questioned whether I had the guts to take that fatal bullet. It was a beautiful day. Son of God. Been raining all morning. Air was... First shot, sounded like a firecracker. I looked over and I saw him. I, I could tell he was hit. I don't know why I didn't react. I should have reacted. I should have been running flat out. I just couldn't believe it. 
only I reacted, I could have taken that shot. That would have been all right with me. All right, so if I were to go over the last part of the film, I'd kind of give away key plot points, so I'm not going to do that. This is well worth your time to check out this film if you're into suspenseful thrillers. The cat and mouse game between Eastwood and Malkovich is terrific, and the acting is just equally as stellar. All right, there were a few deleted scenes, and I'll go through these. So one is the the first piano bar scene, and this is Eastwood playing a piano at a bar, and a woman comes and sits by him and propositions him. She's not a prostitute, though. Uh, she's just tipsy. She's an older lady. He feigns off her messy proposition by teaching her to play the piano. Eastwood's a huge jazz fan and is an accomplished pianist in his own right and a composer, so we like to throw in these types of scenes. There's another deleted scene called The Hat Jokes. So after the paramedics prank, the guys tell stories about Eastwood's early days as a prankster. So one joke was involving a field agent that Eastwood kept telling him that the guy's head could expand or shrink by the temperature outside. So Eastwood bought different sized hats to mess with the guy. He didn't like the agent. Eastwood cracked that the prank worked since the guy transferred three months later. <laughs> the next deleted scene is called Miss Me, which is a quick scene where Eastwood asks Russo out to dinner, but then is quickly interrupted by another Malkovich call. Another scene is called Watching the News. Uh, like it says, Eastwood is, is shown on a TV news report where Eastwood inadvertently roughed up a hotel bellman after he thought that he might be an assassin suspect. And the last one is an alternate version of the piano bar. Eastwood is back at the piano, uh, back at the bar playing the piano, this time with Rene Russo. It's a quick scene where Eastwood jokes at about a detail where he had to guard Fidel Castro when he came to the United Nations. And it was crazy since Castro at the time was the enemy and the CIA was trying to get rid of Castro. Eastwood jokes, he would have done it himself if they had just asked. All right, some fun facts. Robert De Niro was offered the role to play the killer, Mitch Leary, but he had a scheduling conflict while shooting A Bronx Tale. Robert Duvall and Jack Nicholson were also considered before John Malkovich was cast. Also, Ed Harris and William Defoe were considered as well. So Clint Eastwood initially turned down the movie since he was 62, and the character was only supposed to be about 50. Malkovich was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, but lost to Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, and Jeff McGuire was nominated for Best Screenplay, but lost to The Piano. To prepare for his role, Malkovich lived in almost total seclusion for over a month prior to production to connect with the Mitch Leary sense of isolation. He didn't leave his home and he wouldn't talk on the phone. He would rarely watch any television. If he did, it was news programs. Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, Sean Connery, Tommy Lee Jones, Gene Hackman, James Caan, Val Kilmer were all offered the role of Frank Horrigan, but turned it down. William Baldwin, Jeff Fahey, and Bill Pullman were considered for the role of Agent Al D'Andrea, which eventually went to Dylan McDermott. All right, we got a great interview and a great uh, talk with Metal Mike Tyler, and so we're going to talk about In the Line of Fire. It's a lot of fun, as always. He does a great job, and I will be back next week to talk about yet another movie. All right, we're back, and this time it didn't take as long to get DJ Metal Mike Tyler back on, but we have him back. And, of course, check out DJ Metal Mike's show every Friday night starting at 6 p.m. Eastern all the way until he wants to stop because that's just how he rolls. Thank you for being on again. Oh, thanks, brother. Thanks for having me, man. It's a true honor. You know I love your podcast. Well, and I love having you on. You always got great things to talk about. And in addition to loving metal and, and all things music, you also love movies. And so sure. you always have an opinion. And uh, that's what I love. And we're going to talk about one of Quinn Eastwood's later classics, dare I say. And that's In the Line of Fire. Yeah, great film. I mean, uh, you know, 
I'm a big, huge Clint Eastwood fan. I love him. As far as I'm concerned, he really has never done any wrong. I yeah. mean, I even like the fucking movies he made with the Uranotames, okay? You know, like... Oh, those are I, great. I, I love Clint. I love them, too. But, you know, but you'd be surprised. Some people are kind of like, uh, And I'm like, I love those movies. I don't know oh, what you're funny. talking about, man. Yeah. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I think it. I think it's a movie that Hitchcock could have made, man, because there was just certain scenes that reminded me so much of Hitch, like the part where. Um, and spoiler warning for anybody who hasn't seen this movie, but um, like the part where Malkovich is getting ready to shoot the president and he drops the bullet. That's such a Hitchcock thing, you know That's what I mean? That's a good call. That's a good call. Yeah, it's such a Hitchcock thing, but you know the whole psychological chess game that him and and Malkovich is playing and and John was perfect for that role because yeah. much like his character he is a chameleon like he can just change his look so much man oh. you know and I also liked it that he wasn't some one-dimensional villain he he wasn't going after the president just because he could or because it, it was because he felt like the government had fucked him over yep and he was gonna make him pay you know and uh I, yeah I really liked it it was a great movie man well, I think the key to any movie like this, you it, it all hinges on the villain. If you don't have a strong villain where you oh. really despise that guy or he doesn't resonate with you, the film can't be as good. And in this case, he's perfect. John Malkovich is absolutely perfect. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, one of some of my favorite parts is the one where he's out testing his gun and he runs under the hunter. Yes. And then, you know, like, hey, can I try that? And he shoots the, and he goes, oh, and how much are you selling it for? Oh, it's not for sale. I need it. For what? To, shoot, to assassinate the president. What the hell would you want to do that for, mister? Why'd you shoot that duck, you asshole? Yeah. Bam, bam. I'm like, oh. You know, which is a legitimate question. It's like, well, why did you, you know, you didn't shoot that duck for the sport of it. You didn't You didn't shoot that duck so you could eat it later, like most hunters claim. You yeah. shot it because you could. Yeah. And he's like, and I'm going to kill the president because I can. Exactly. You know, I mean, it was a really cool scene, man. It was. That's a, I'm glad you pointed that one out. That's actually really and I, well done. And I also love the scene where it, I, where he, he lies to the lady at the bank about being from Minneapolis. Yep. And he realizes, oh, fuck, now I got to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that whole scene was fucking intense, you know. Oh, man. And then later he tells Frank, and then some people die because they're from Minneapolis, Frank. Right. It's all man. <laughs> I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're yeah. laughing because it, it is kind of that sinister, dark part of it. Oh, yeah. 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 But, I mean, it was like I couldn't help but feel sorry for the poor lady. It's like, oh, oh. she seems like such a sweetheart, too, you know. And, but that's the key. You need to hate him because if you don't yeah. hate him, then it doesn't right. work as Right, much. right. Which I think uh, with him, it was like, hey, sweetheart, nothing personal, really. It's But I can't take the chance of you ruining this for him. Yeah. Right. It was That's why he did it. It wasn't out of malice or – and then also I like the part where he's like, well, I've seen what you do to your friends. I'm not your friend. You know, Clint Eastwood, I'm not your friend. And he's like, he sent my brother, my comrade in arms to kill me in my home. Right. You know, and that made it personal. And I, I, I like that because it's the one part where most of the movie he's always getting under Frank's skin. He's always pissing him off. You know, right. He's putting, and that's the one moment where he just goes, you realize how many times I could have fucking killed you? Show me some goddamn respect. Blam. <laughs> uh, great, great scene, man. Him and Doc, I wish they would do more together because they made a great team, I thought. They did. And this is one of the few movies that Eastwood, at this point, didn't direct, which I, th right. I thought was interesting. Yeah. 
Yeah, Wolfgang Peterson directed it, man. That's right. That's right. So did you see this when it first came out in theaters? Or Yes, or I did. Me and my, my previously my friend that I mentioned previously um, on our last podcast, uh-huh. uh, Brian Hahn, Big B, we went to see it together, man. And I loved it, you know, um, thought it was a phenomenal film. And it has stood up well. Yeah, and, and definitely because of Eastwood, because of Malkovich. But Rene Russo is great. Dylan McDermott's great. And and you have other side characters with him. Dylan McDermott. Oh, man, yeah. I felt so sorry for him because he's yeah. all like, I can't do this shit, Frank. And, Come on, kid. Don't give up on me. Don't quit. I need you. Well, he, he kind of gave up. He almost gave up acting at this point because he really hadn't hit it big yet. And uh, yeah. this was kind of his big break. And he was totally in awe of Eastwood, at, you know, as, as uh, a young actor. Oh, really? Would I, didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that, you know, because I'd seen Dylan before that in a few things. And he's a good enough actor, you know. I mean, he's not like one of my favorites, but I, I've i always enjoyed him in everything I've seen. I mean, he's a good actor. And he did a good job. Everybody did. Uh, John um, Mahoney. Mahoney is his boss was great. Gary yeah. Cole. Gary Cole. Head, a- head agent was great too, but Gary Cole's great in everything he does. That's right. And, and then uh, you get Fred Thompson, who's always playing like a political heavy. You know? Didn't Fred Thompson go into politics in real life? He did. He was running for I don't know if he was running for president or if he was running for like, you know, governor or senator. But yeah, he was yeah, he was definitely I think in he it. was a senator. He was in Congress or something. I, yeah. I remember that because I was like, whoa, that dude's the one that's always playing the heavy and, and and he's not always a bad guy really, but he's just a a lot of the movies I've seen him in, he's just a no nonsense Exactly. You no, know, yeah. whether he's a good guy or a bad guy, it's like he he doesn't fuck around. You know, he yeah. tells you what he thinks. His character in this, he was kind of a, but I could see where, I also see where he's come from because he's trying to get his guy reelected again. Right. That's all he cares about. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like he's in the hunt for Red October too. He does the same thing. It's all the bottom line with him. Yes, it is. You know what's interesting about this movie? It's one of the few movies where, you know, the title of the president's really a a centerpiece, but you barely see the president. It's all kind of an afterthought. Yeah, and it's weird, too, because I, I have to wonder, you know, because one of the things the movies made me think about when I watched it the first time, even, was the fact that I never really, you know, I've I've heard, I've heard read about the Kennedy assassination. I've mm-hmm. heard about it and, and all the conspiracies and all the stuff. And, and even I wonder sometimes whether there was more than one gunman. Sure. But the thing is, the one thing I've never bought into, I've never bought the fact that Oswald was a patsy who had nothing. Oh, no. no. That motherfucker was involved. If, if there was a conspiracy, if there was more than one gunman, he mm-hmm. was one of the gunmen. I oh, don't, sure. Nobody yeah. will ever convince me of that. Like, mm-hmm. he, you know, this shit, oh, well, Oswald was just a total. No, Oswald wasn't a total patsy. He was involved. Now, I'm not saying there was another gunman. I don't know. And even the people that were there couldn't fucking tell you. So, And, and there could have been other people involved that didn't actually shoot, too. I mean, that's, that's right. always been the yeah. thing. You don't you know. know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there could have been people that, like, set him up and made him the straw man, too. Sure. I mean, because sure. the whole thing with Ruby killing him is kind of fucking fishy. I ain't going to oh. lie. I mean, it just didn't look good at all. Yeah. But I've, I've never bought into the whole, like, well, he was just a guy that was a uh, total patsy. No, no, he was involved. I think well, he killed. I think he was one of the gunmen, and I think he did kill that cop. Well, especially with all of the th- stuff with the Kennedys, it all started with the dad, Joseph Kennedy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he definitely had mafia ties. That that's pretty well it's a documented. Fucking rum runner, dude. He was exactly. a rum runner. I mean, come uh, on, you know. So, and then having Bobby killed a few years later, I mean, definitely I mean, they they rub people the wrong way. 
why do you think Jimmy Hoffa was kind of like, fuck you, Bobby? He was yep. like, fuck you, Bobby, because he's like, dude, your your laundry is just as dirty as mine. That's right. You know, like, where do you get off, you know? And, yeah, uh, don't, don't say you're going to go after the mafia when it helped get you into office. <laughs> so. Right. You know, it's not, not a real smart move. Well, but. actually, this brings up a great point. As a Secret Service agent, which, of course, Clint Eastwood's character is, even if you don't like the president, you still have to put your life on the line for him, which is fascinating, which is fascinating, because what other job would you do that, you know? Well, I love the part where he's like, the the government trained you to protect people, and the government trained me to kill people. Uh The same government, you know, and and you got that dichotomy between both characters, and it was really cool. And I also think that one of the things that when Malkovich is talking about the article like 10 years after and how things had went bad for Clint's character, and and I'm sure I have to wonder, like, how much research did the guy who write the script do? Because it seemed very real to me, like that probably – you know, you know it had to haunt those guys, man. I mean, it was their fucking job, man, and they failed. They failed. You know. Yeah. But, as I as I discovered, they definitely did. They talked to actual people that were involved in the that were working for the Secret Service during the Kennedy assassination. There was a huge sixty minutes interview with one of the guys that, uh, much like Eastwood, Eastwood's character felt incredible. Like he had that whole burden of that on his shoulders right. the rest of his life, you know, or even the guys that protected uh, Reagan when Reagan was shot at and right. Rand was shot, you know, that same thing. you like, that's, th- those are big, big, big life changing things. Going back to in the line of fire, you would definitely recommend coming back to this. It still holds up for you. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, it's, it's got everything really, you know, and it's got Clint Eastwood and I don't know. I, I, I love Clint Eastwood. You know what I mean? Like I said, he can do no wrong. And one of my other favorite scenes is when he's he goes out to ice cream with Renee Russo. Yeah. And they're sitting on the Capitol steps and and he's like, uh, you know, he's sitting there and 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 she starts walking away and he's like, OK, Abe, if she turns around, then I know she's interested. Come on, baby. Turn around. Then finally she does. And he's like, Did you see that, Abe? And he's like, wish I could have been there to help you out, buddy. I love that scene. Yeah. Clint Eastwood, man. Yeah, it's the subtleties of his humor that always yeah. works well. Yeah. yeah. Another thing about Clint I don't think people talk enough about is his composing ability. Because like the last yeah. movie, he actually composed his own music. The only other director I know of that does that is John Carpenter. Yeah, exactly. That's a good call. And uh, there's a, uh, some scenes with him at the piano bar where he's yeah, playing. Yeah. Those are good scenes. Those are yeah, good scenes. yeah. Well, he loves his jazz and blues, man. He's he about does. that way I am about my metal, man. That's right. That's right. Yes. Well, as always, DJ Metal Mike, you are the best. Thank you for joining us, and uh, it's always awesome to talk to you. Always a pleasure, brother. Have a good one. Stay metal. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the bad beat, because even when you lose, you still win.
We are officially on Spotify now. So if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there. So if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to tpublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for damn good movie memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. The way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original, Vieira Vault. On Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Spreaker. God damn it. This is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. If you're like me and my co-host, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, you grew up loving hard rock and metal music. Check out our podcast where we talk to bands and artists that help create the soundtrack to our lives, along with playing some killer new and old deep tracks of kick-ass guitar-driven rock and roll. Find us wherever you find your podcast to listen to, That's the Growing Up Rock Podcast, G-R-O-W-I-N-U-P-R-O-C-K. And feel free to hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, at Growing Up Rock. 
So sit back and crank it up. <laughs>